Today we're going to be going on a little journey back in time a few centuries, around about 6th centuries BC, and we're going to be looking at events taking place in the court of Nebuchadnezzar the king at the time of Judah's captivity there. Daniel is usually the person, when you do sermons on the book of Daniel, it's usually Daniel that you focus on. Today, actually, we're going to, he's going to be kind of peripheral to events. I'm going to talk about how he ended up there and what work he did when he was there. But my main focus is going to be on the king Nebuchadnezzar himself and what lessons we can learn from an event which took place in his life towards the end of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant leader, military campaigner, and as a young man, he engaged, he was made by his father, um, the head of the army, and he engaged in a number of military campaigns in that region to tackle those nations which threatened the primacy of Babylon in that region. And that main nation was Egypt. And between Egypt and Babylon was a cluster of smaller nations, including Judah, that were vassal states of, of Egypt. And he set out, and in 605 BC, he took on Egypt's main army at a place called Karshemesh, and he smashed them and broke their power and made them subservient to Babylon. And he then proceeded to go in cleaning up all those little vassal states, including Judah. He overran Judah, he besieged Jerusalem, and deposed their king, who was a puppet ruler, Yehoahim, a bad king and a puppet ruler appointed by Pharaoh. He took a lot of the uh, treasures in the Lord's temple back to his own land and installed them in the temple of his own god, Marduk. He took thousands and thousands of people back to Babylon with him, leaving some there to continue farming the land and paying tribute to them in the form of tax. One of the things he did, and this is a very common practice in those days, is he took a number of hostages from the royal family and the senior nobility in Jerusalem back to Babylon as a guarantee of the good behavior of the people that he left behind. And he took three, there's Nebuchadnezzar there, that's, that's a statue of him. <clears throat> he took three young, uh, four young men, including Daniel, uh, who were from noble or um, the royal family lines about 14 or 15 years of, years of age, took them back to Babylon, and um, they were, the regime itself was actually fairly enlightened, and they treated their, uh, these hostages pretty well. And they realized that if they were going to rule over a very large kingdom, that they needed extra people in their service to help them do it. So they tested all the hostages that they brought back from these conquered lands, for levels of intelligence, how quick they were to learn and how adaptable they were. And they found these four young men, including Daniel, were particularly brilliant. So they put them into a training camp, uh, like a a three-year training program. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to Babylonianize them. So they taught them the Babylonian language about its culture and its history, etc. And then they caused them to enter into the civil service, Daniel being one of them. Now, the events that we're going to look at are actually in chapter 4. So, how do we get to this point? Well, Daniel proved himself to be a brilliant leader, someone who had great wisdom, and someone who was able to uh, interpret dreams. And he had proven himself so well that he'd been appointed the head of the civil service in Babylon. And right at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he'd been given a, a dream by God, which we're going to look at in a little more detail later on. 
And Daniel is the man who came along and offered him the interpretation. And what we're going to look at in this, in this uh, talk that I'm going to give is the content of that dream and the meaning of the dream and the events which surround uh, the dream that's been given to Nebuchadnezzar. We know that this event took place at the end of his reign. There's no dates given, but we know from the things he is saying, because he actually wrote most of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar himself. We know from what he's saying in that event that he's at peace, he's finished his military campaigning, and he's finished, he's completed his rebuilding of Babylon, which he completely rebuilt as a monument to himself. So we know that's right at the end of his reign. And we think it's about in the 34th or 35th year, which would make Daniel about 50 years of age by that time. The book of Daniel is written by Daniel himself. Chapter 4 was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel may have had some input as an editor. And this makes chapter 4 of Daniel quite an unusual book because it is the only text of any length in Scripture which is written by a Gentile. And not only a Gentile, by a pagan. And what makes the presence of this work in Scripture so much more remarkable is when you think about what kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was, God has allowed this man to put some of his writings in our scriptures. But this is a man who was a military campaigner, who waged wars. This is a man who conquered and overran Judah. This is a man who besieged Jerusalem. This is a man who killed Judah's king. This is a man who stole treasures out of the, out of the Lord's temple and then demolished it for good measure and who took hostages from Judah back to uh, Babylon. And yet God has allowed this man to speak to us through the pages of Scripture. And there's a lesson we can learn in that, in that we'd be wrong to stereotype the kind of people that God will use and speak through. You don't have to be the stuff that prophets are made of. You don't have to be a man at the height of his powers. You don't have to be upright and clean living. You don't have to have a white mane of flowing hair and a big white beard. And I'm awfully glad that that isn't a requirement. If the Lord can use a man like Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes to speak to others, then he can use us too. And I think that's the first quick lesson that we can learn before we move on to look at the rest of it. That the next time that God grants you the honor and the privilege and the opportunity to witness to a non-believer and you are assailed with thoughts of inadequacy, just think of Nebuchadnezzar. If God can use a man like him for his purposes, then he can use you for his purposes as well. Right. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about 35 years into his reign, we are told by Nebuchadnezzar himself that he's lying on his bed or lying in bed and he has a dream or some visions. We don't know whether he's awake or asleep, but what we do know is that these visions that he has, and there's a series of them we think were so powerful that he knows that this isn't part of normal practice, that this is something different. And it was commonplace in those societies for them to believe that Uh, The gods, because they were polytheistic, this was a polytheistic culture, as were most of the pagan cultures in the world. It was commonly believed that the gods would talk to you and give you messages about the future through dreams and by other means. 
Because those people were just as interested in what was coming down the line as we are. We're fascinated to know what's going to be happening in the future. So we have programs on television like we did called Tomorrow's World, which used to fascinate me. I'm sure they never really got it right, but it was very interesting at the time. And we use supercomputers to model what might be happening in the future, like climate change. And we use focus groups of experts and Delphi techniques and all sorts of processes to try and figure out what's going to happen in the future. And these people were just as keen to know that as we are. They didn't have some of the techniques we do, but they looked to their gods. They believed that the gods would speak to them and tell them about their dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar had such a dream. And it was the job of the wise men in the kingdom, the astrologers, the magicians, the enchanters, and the rest, to interpret those dreams. That was one of the roles that they had. And they used to train themselves how to do this, and they had big books full of all the techniques and the interpretive methods that they needed to interpret these dreams. So the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does, he says in the middle of the night, as he calls for his wise men to come in and interpret the dream for him. And the wise men came in, and, and the king tells them the dream. And they say, well, I'm sorry, but we can't interpret that. We don't know what that means. And that's rather strange, because that was their job, and they're supposed to be the professionals, the people who are best at doing that. What I think is happening here is they knew that sooner or later the king was going to ask Daniel to interpret that dream as well. Because Daniel wasn't there at that moment. And if Daniel gave a different interpretation from them, they were going to be in big trouble. Because the last time he'd asked them to interpret the dreams, and they hadn't been able to do it, he threatened to kill them all. And it was only Daniel's intervention which prevented them, and probably their families as well, from being killed. But even if that didn't happen... What happens if events transpire differently? The king would turn on them again. It was a no-win for them, so they did the only clever thing they could do, which was to say, sorry, we can't interpret that. So, Nebuchadnezzar calls for Daniel. Daniel wasn't there at that moment. He comes in later. It may be that the, the men who came to Nebuchadnezzar in the night was the night staff. They were the night staff on duty. Or it may be that Daniel was somewhere else in the empire. Because you have to remember, these men were not just there to interpret the king's dreams. They were also the heads of his civil service. They were responsible for administering the empire. And that sort of magical stuff and enchantments for healings and things was only part of their duties. So Daniel comes in, and the king tells him the dream. When Daniel comes in, Nebuchadnezzar offers him praise. And he calls him, not by his Hebrew name, he calls him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. One of the things that happened when Daniel and his three friends came into Babylon, one of the first things that they did was they gave him new names. And in this table on the left, you can see the names they originally had. And you can see that they all link to and venerate God, Yahweh, the one true God. So the first thing the Babylonians do when they want to Babylonianize these impressionable young men is give them new names in the Babylonian language that venerate their gods. And Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, is, means in Babylonian, protect his life, or more appropriately, Bel, protect him. Because Bel was the name of the major god in the city at that time. 
it had another name, Marduk, and that was the god that Nebuchadnezzar himself worshipped. Bel and Marduk are the same. Bel protected him. And you can see that all the other three are also, the other three are also given names which address and venerate the Babylonian gods from their pantheon. Interestingly, this is just an aside, in the archaeological record from Babylon, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, they found a written list of all the heads of the civil service in Babylon, and the names of those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were all there. And we even know what they did, what their jobs were. And I can't remember from memory all of them. But I know that one of them, I can't remember which one, was actually in charge of the, um, of the slave girls at the king's court. <clears throat> A little bit of historical verification there. So, when Daniel comes in, the king venerates him. He says, Belteshazzar, it's hard to say that. I'm going to call him Daniel from now on. Chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. What we see immediately is, uh, is that the king Nebuchadnezzar had amazing confidence in Daniel. He'd never let him down, not once, over the 35 years of his reign. We can also see that Nebuchadnezzar is still polytheistic. He's still a pagan, he's still polytheistic. He, doesn't qu- he hasn't quite twigged the fact that what's actually in Daniel is the spirit of the one true God, Yahweh. He thinks it's the spirits of the gods in general. Even though Daniel and those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, through surviving in the fiery furnace with the angel, had demonstrated the power of Yahweh, he hadn't dropped all his other gods. He merely added Yahweh to the pantheon of gods that they had. That was something that they could do. So, does Nebuchadnezzar do next? Well, he tells Daniel his dream. He's keen to know the content of that dream because it's frightened him. Because just like the dream he had at the beginning of his reign, it involves massive destruction and loss. And he will be worried that this destruction and loss refers to him. So he wants to know exactly what this is about. So he says to Daniel this, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while I was lying on my bed, And there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, And let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the the mind of an animal. Till seven times have passed for him. That's seven years. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. 
so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Now, when Daniel hears that dream, he is perplexed. He is really deeply concerned. And it's quite some time before he can actually tell Nebuchadnezzar what the meaning of the dream is. And Nebuchadnezzar actually has to intervene and reassure him, saying, come on, I understand. Tell me what this dream is about. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. I need to know. And what Daniel immediately says is, okay, the tree that you see in the dream is you. And the fact that it's located in the center of the land shows that this is you at the center of power in this empire, in your capital in Babylon. And the height of the tree and the fact that it can be seen from all parts of the land says something about the nature, extent, and quality of Nebuchadnezzar's power. His power reaches over most of what was the known world in that day. And most of the major kingdoms at any level of technological development and sophistication were now under his control. But not only that, he had the kind of power that we don't see in the world today amongst any of our rulers, even that despot in North Korea. He had the power of life and death. He had the power to intervene in every area of the life of every single person living in his empire. If he said, kill them, they were killed men, women, families, children, nations, he could kill. He could destroy them just like that. No one would question his authority. If you questioned his authority, refused to obey him, you died. He could even instruct you on how you should worship and who you should worship. He could even command the people he ruled to worship him, and he did. We don't see that kind of power in the world today. There's a definition of power, the ability of an individual by any means, to motivate others to change their behavior. He had that about as far as you can get it, about as far as any man under heaven, under God, can have power, that man had it. More imagery in this dream says other things about Nebuchadnezzar and his regime. God is making judgments. He's passing judgments on Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And it's very interesting to note that some of the judgments that God is making on Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are actually positives. He talks about the tree being beautiful and its leaves being beautiful. He talks about the wild animals and the birds finding shelter in that tree. He talks about them finding food. And what God is saying through the imagery is, this stuff is good. That your kingdom isn't all bad that some of the things you're doing, I actually approve of. You are bringing good government to this empire. You are protecting people. You are supplying them food. You are providing the necessities of life. And this might sound strange to us, that God would actually be complimenting Nebuchadnezzar on the quality of his regime, because we tend to have a view in the church that human governments and human achievements are actually an affront to God that they're actually usurping God's power. And the ideal is for there to be no governments at all and everyone to be answerable directly to God. But God actually loves good government, which is why he says in Scripture, time and again, I raise up leaders and kings 
He would never do that if he didn't want human government. And I would go further to say that when God finished creation on the sixth day and then rested, although creation was very good, that's God's words, that's perfect, it was actually not quite complete because he had devolved to human beings the responsibility of completing his creation. And we can know several things immediately that human beings had to do in order to achieve that. And the first one was to be fruitful and multiply. That a completed creation didn't have two people in it, it had multitudes of human beings all over the world. He told them to manage to steward the world and to subdue it. So we know that a completed creation has a world managed by human beings. Managing it sensitively. Not destroying it, but managing it nonetheless. That was part of our role in completing God's creation. Something else we had to do to complete his creation was to fill the earth with the knowledge of him. Which meant teaching and worship. We had to use our creative gifts to build transport networks and cities to live in and buildings and works of art and to use our intelligence and problem-solving ability in the area of science and develop scientific knowledge and technologies. But to do all that, venerating him on, on the right template for human culture and society, putting God at the center. That was part of our responsibility to complete creation. What actually happened is that because we rebelled so early, the first societies that were built, the first examples of human culture were built on the wrong footprint. They were built in enmity to God and in opposition to him. But that doesn't mean God doesn't like good government. So, now we get to the negative side of of God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. The angel commanding that the tree, the great tree, be cut down. Daniel said, the tree is you, therefore you are going to be removed from power. You're going to suffer loss. And it's obvious from Daniel's reaction that he was really deeply upset by that. And we can infer from this that Daniel actually liked King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar liked and respected him, and he liked, maybe loved, King Nebuchadnezzar. Which means that in many ways this was a good guy. So the first thing Daniel does when he says, look, this is you, that you're going to be removed from power, that's what's being threatened here. So let me give you some advice. You need to stop your iniquity. You need to stop your ruthless treatment of the oppressed. So what Daniel did was he had a fish around in his mind and said, well, what is it that God could be condemning about this guy and the way he rules? Well, he's pretty ruthless to the oppressed. We don't know who that group are. It could be the poor and dispossessed. It's most likely to be people taken in battle who were brought in as slaves. Because in the ancient world and in Babylon and in country and city-states like Nineveh, there was brutal treatment of people taken in battle and refugees taken from conquered nations as slaves. Brutal. They were, they, were, they were murdered, they were tortured, often for sport. 
And it might be that that was going on in Babylon as well. So he says to King Nebuchadnezzar, right, if you stop this, if you stop this ruthless treatment of the oppressed, maybe God will relent. And he won't bring about this judgment on you. And it's possible that King Nebuchadnezzar actually took that advice. Because if there's one person in the whole kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar would listen to and change, it's Daniel. Unfortunately, 12 months later, he gets the red card. He got the yellow card when he got the dream, but he got the red card 12 months later. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing himself. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? What we know from the archaeological record and from scriptures is that Babylon was, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder. Like many highly successful men, particularly who were successful in wars, they build monuments to themselves. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris is one such thing in modern times. They want their, their successes commemorated, their builders. They want to leave monuments to them for future generations to achieve some kind of immortality. And Nebuchadnezzar largely rebuilt Babylon from the ground up. And he built new temples, and he built new road systems, and he built uh, new public places. This was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were there. Nebuchadnezzar built those also. Archaeological um, studies have actually found many of these buildings that he built. I've got his name printed on every brick to say, I did this. Every single brick, millions of them, with his name printed on them. But the hammer fell on him when he uttered those words because we can see the main problem he, wa- he had was pride. That he was looking out over his city from the roof of his palace and he was venerating himself and lifting himself up as a god. And that's when the axe fell on him. The words were still on his lips. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Note the 12-month gap between the warning in the dream, the yellow card, and the red card. And I'll say something about why there was that 12-month gap in a little moment. But first, I want to look at this judgment that had been passed on him. What was actually going to happen to this man? Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. This is one of the passages in scripture which skeptics take hold of and they say this proves that the Bible is not an accurate historical record because that is the the stuff of fairy tale. That doesn't happen. And the reason they say this is because 
they look around the world and they say, well, where do you see that happening? Anywhere in the world. Hmm? You don't see that, that sort of thing happening. It's just not possible. And therefore, this can't be true. This is made up stuff. This is made up for, to prove, to make a point, some spiritual principle or whatever, and it's not true. What people like that forget is that in the scientific record, there is evidence of a, a mental health condition like that. There is a form of psychosis called lycanthropy, which literally means wolf man. And for centuries, psychiatrists and other medics have known about this health condition where people believe that they have become transformed into an animal. Um, it's called lycanthropy, which literally means wolf man, or the ability to transform into a wolf, because that was one of the earliest instances that was studied. People believing they were wolves. But people believe they can be all sorts of animals, even gerbils. <coughs> and there's a, a really relevant example from right here in the UK, from just after the Second World War. This is not a common condition, but it does happen. Of a man who was uh, under treatment in a mental hospital here, who believed that he was a cow. And in the reports that the psychiatrist made about him, he reported that this man would take off his clothes and he would walk on all fours and he would wander the grounds of the hospital eating grass and drinking water from open water bodies and that because he was so exposed to the elements, the hair on his body grew really thick and matted and his nails thickened and grew really long like the talons of a bird. Science supports this and yet the skeptics deny it. They won't even use their own science to judge whether this is true or not. This is why God says things in Scripture like men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what they're doing. And just in case you think I'm making all this up, there's an online article from the Journal of Psychological Medicine dated 1988 entitled Lycanthropy Alive and Well in the 20th, 20th Century. It's a thing. Right. Why the delay? Why not bring the hammer down the first time? Why wait 12 months? God waited 12 months in order to give Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to change. Because God would much rather we changed than punish us. And he will often punish us to get us to change. Admonition. Proverbs 3. This is a wise man speaking. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. God would much rather you change and make yourself right with him than kill you and destroy you. He could have brought the curtain down on Nebuchadnezzar then and there. He could have killed him with a wasting disease. He could have brought in... Um, um, a usurper to assassinate him. He could have brought another army against him to take away his kingdom. These are the sorts of things that he did with the evil leaders, leaders of Israel and Judah all throughout their history. He didn't do this with Nebuchadnezzar. He, he rebuked him. He punished him by taking away his mind and humbling him, taking away everything he had that he took pride in in order to get him to change. And he did that because he knew that it would work. 
he understood Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He understood his character, his nature, and he knew that this would work for him, that it was worth the effort. And that's why he gave him the chance. And spending those seven years living as an animal, having lost everything that he took pride in, transformed the man. And we can see from what he wrote when he was restored to power, as he was, just as the prophecy foretold, that he was a changed man and he had come to a new understanding of how he stood in relation to God. That he might be the most powerful man in the world, but he was still nothing compared to the sovereign God. That there was still someone far above him with far more power and it's him that deserved the glory and not himself. He wrote a letter as a public act of contrition an open letter which he sent right throughout his empire to be read to everybody. There would be heralds who would take that letter, they would stand in the market squares and the centers of villages, and the humblest pauper in his kingdom would hear Nebuchadnezzar telling about what God has done to him, about punishing him for his pride, and about how, and hearing Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging the Lord as sovereign. Daniel 4. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The very existence of this chapter in the book of Daniel is evidence that he was a transformed man. Pride was his problem. Why is pride so bad? I think in scripture we get the saying, pride comes before a fall. Perhaps the most relevant saying would be, pride came before the fall. If Satan, posing as the servant, had come up to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, have some of this fruit, it looks delicious, would they have taken it? Almost certainly not. If he had said to them, look, this is so good for you, this fruit. It wonders for your complexion. It'll make you look so much more attractive. You'll be healthier. Would they have taken it? They would not. And he knew they wouldn't. But he knew a way to get to them. And he attacked them at the point of their pride. Because he knew that they desired to be more than they were. And he told them that if they ate of it, they would gain knowledge. And that knowledge would make them like God. Because it would be the kind of knowledge that God had. It was a promise that they they could be more than they actually were. And that's what they aspire to. And that is pride. And that's why they fell. And he knew and understood their weakness. Because he shared the same thing. Because it was his desire to be more than he actually was that led to his fall from relationship with God. His desire to lift himself up, to be like God, to be the object of worship, which led to his downfall. Because the Lord God will not share his glory with anyone. And Nebuchadnezzar was falling into the same trap. And because God will not share his glory with anyone, that's why he stepped in to punish Nebuchadnezzar and to humble him to get him to change. Now you may say to, a, to me, well, how does this relate to us? There's no Nebuchadnezzar here. 
There's no megalomaniacs. There's no Alexander the Great. There's no people lucky to go out and conquer half the world. Why are you telling us about this? We are not like Nebuchadnezzar. But that doesn't mean we don't have problems with pride, does it? Our pride is maybe slightly different. Our pride might be thinking we are better than other people because we are taller or better looking or younger or stronger or more successful in business or have a nicer house or a nicer car or know more of the scriptures or are more pious. We still suffer from those problems and time and again in scripture, particularly in the New Testament, the New Testament writers address this issue of pride, of us thinking that we're better than we actually are. They wouldn't do that if people in the church didn't experience that kind of problem. Another problem we have in the church is, I think, aggravated in our generation by postmodernism. Postmodernism elevates the self. It puts me at the center of everything. It makes me the final arbiter of truth. It makes me the judge. It's the me, me generation. That's why they say that line. And one of the outworkings of that is look at scripture and we pick and choose the bits we like. The bits we want to even the descriptions of God, his nature and his character and what he expects of us. And because we put ourselves at the center of things, because we've decided that we are the final arbiter, we are the judge, that we are judge over scripture and not scripture judge over us. Scripture doesn't have authority over us. We have authority over scripture. And we can decide for ourselves the bits we accept and the bits we don't. And we conjure up an image of God that we want. This is folly, and it is folly based on a form of pride. We need to accept that that book is God's word in printed form, and it has authority over us, and we've got no business deciding that there's certain bits of it that we're not going to accept. We're not movers and shakers, We are the moved and the shaken. We are the pawns that are moved around on the chessboard of life. The rich, the powerful, governments, forces beyond our control determine how much we're going to pay for a price of bread, for a loaf of bread, how much we're going to get for our pension, whether we get medical treatment or not, at what age we're going to retire. We don't take did these sorts of decisions, somebody takes them for us and we just have to like it or lump it. But what we can learn from this scripture, this passage and the experience of Nebuchadnezzar is even the most powerful person in the world is subject to the will of God. That we might think that we're blown around by uncontrollable forces, but God is ultimately in control. And because he's ultimately in control, we don't need to fear. We learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience that we don't have to worry about our health. We don't have to worry about our job. 
We don't have to worry about our safety. We don't have to worry about our future. Because that is all in his hands and he is in control. It's not our job to worry. It's our job to believe his promises. And he has promised that if we turn to him and ask forgiveness for our sin and repent, he will save us. That's the important promise he gives us. It's not the only one. He also promises he's coming again. And he will. So if you don't know the Lord today, consider his promise to save you if you put your trust in him. Let go of your fears and take hold of him. And you will spend eternity in paradise with him. I pray that the Lord blesses this word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.